If debit is your go-to card, Discover thinks it's time you get rewarded too. So check out Discover Cashback Debit, a game-changing checking account with cashback on everyday debit card purchases. That's right. Cashback isn't just for credit cards anymore. Whether it's a movie date, flea market find, or midday latte, you can start earning cashback. And did I mention there are no fees, period? Check out transaction eligibility and terms at discover.com slash cashback debit. Discover Bank, member FDIC. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Well, it looks like we're still stuck with each other for a little while. I'm your host, Rob Zachney, and this is Remap Radio, episode 2, June 9th, 2023. Today we are joined by Ricardo Contreras. I don't think you can make that your opening bit. Yes, I can. <laughs> no! And we're also joined by Renata Price. I'm glad to be here, personally. And of course, we have our special guest today, uh, our friend from the G Word, factually currently on tour, comedian and writer Adam Conover. Oh my gosh, thank you so much for having me, and congratulations on uh, piercing the veil of uh, business independence. And uh, I mean, I'm so I'm so thrilled to to be here. I'll help you guys launch this new chapter. Oh, absolutely, and we're thrilled to have you. Uh, to that point, yes, as always, we are a listener-supported show. Uh, if you are interested in helping us, or you uh, you can learn more at remapradio.com. Our website has links to our memberful page where you can sign up for monthly or annual plans, and that gives you access to exclusive Remap content. And that helps us keep this all going. So let's get into today's topics. I guess, you know, we might as well dive into what we were spending yesterday on stream doing uh, to some extent was watching uh, the, you know, the, the Game Fest stream. And I'm just curious, like quick round, you know, round table reactions. Let's set aside Day of the Devs for, for a second here. <laughs> what did we think of Game Fest? Alan Wake was really cool. Uh, they they get. Everything else or almost everything else felt like the like the worst possible version uh, of the just like trailer vibes. Like, I'm sure the games are all going to be fine. But like in terms of like presentation vibes, it felt like the dark sided version of 2012. Just like 2012 stripped of any like ounce of like genuineness or uh, like craft. It was like a really weird thing to watch for two hours. Yeah, it was. um I I would say it also didn't help that it doesn't it still does not feel like the game pipeline is necessarily brimming with amazing stuff right now. I feel like the 
that that show was sort of tracking into a stiff headwind just from the fact that a lot of stuff they were showing is stuff we kind of already know about. You know, how many more times can you explain the fact that Spider-Man 2, uh, it's going to have Miles and Peter in it and also Venom. Venom will be there. There's just not much more to get out of that. I am not sure that um, Marvel Snap feels like a main stage uh, event, especially when, once again, I'm I'm not really sure what was what was there to announce. And I think that's in in a weird way. I kind of feel like the Game Fest stream ended up capturing some of the reasons why E3 died in microcosm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I mean, there's not a lot for me here. <laughs> you know, scrolling through it, there's not a lot that I'm excited about. Um, I mean, Final Fantasy footage always fun. Uh, didn't didn't know that the shambling corpse of Prince of Persia was going to lurch itself into view, but you know, there it is. <laughs> I I would love for it to not be a shambling corpse. I think is <laughs> is one thing for me is it was a reminder. So that I loved Prince of Persia when I was a uh, little kid. My yeah. math teacher in middle school had it on the, you know, there was like, you yeah. know, <laughs> there's the, the teacher's computer that nobody got to touch and the, the teacher had access to it. Uh, I also yeah, had yeah. it shown to me by a teacher. It was a ca- canonical quintessential teacher's game. <laughs> yeah, but it was also kind of a scene like maybe this teacher is a little bit cool because Prince of Persia yeah. is awesome. And that dude dies on spikes so many times that game goes hard. And then it gives us, you know, in a weird way, I think it's so funny that The Sands of Time is is an all-time like action-adventure game and also is the foundation, the precursor to the entire Assassin's Creed franchise. Like a lot of what uh, you know turns into Assassin's Creed is being is being sort of laid out uh there and ends up, you know, through I think a lack of creative identity if if that makes sense i don't know it's it feels like they tried to split the difference with the prince of persia between making him an iconic character that you could revisit again and again in sort of like link but then also trying to have him perfectly reflect the zeitgeist of whenever they were making a new game and so you end up with for instance sands of time immediately we get you know it turns into a trilogy and we get edgelord prince of persia mm-hmm. and nobody likes that guy as much <laughs> it's also a series that got so far away from its roots even like i loved sansa times when I, when I played it on gamecube in like 2005 or whatever 2006 but it uh it's very different from that original game, which is all about like it's very precision platforming and like sudden deaths and all these hidden secrets and things like that. Uh, it, you know, they completely changed the formula, which is completely fine. But I'm watching, you know, the trailer for the new 2.5D Prince of Persia, and it looks like neither one of those. It like there's a lot of uh, air juggling bad guys and stuff like that. I'm like, well, if you're yeah. going to do 2D, then do go back do what the sonic trailer is doing which is go back to the roots of the series and do the updated version of the game mechanics we all remember from our apple IIe's, um whatever that might mean to you uh it, it doesn't seem to be either one of those it's just like okay this is a character that people still remember question mark you know that we can that we can bring back to life it's it's just a little bit uh neither one or the other 
Yeah, I, I definitely, I definitely get where you're coming from. I think uh, my hope is the game will play a bit more like a classic Prince of Persia. I think there's at least some some cause for that hope in there. But in in terms of like other stuff that came up, like yeah, I think it's it's this is the fact that Alan Wake is now such a big franchise relative like in the scale of these shows is so funny because it was a commercial flop in in its day. It was not in the first rank of like blockbusters probably still isn't, but it's all gotten so depleted that just by hanging around and turning out like steady, successful, like, you know, good, good to great games now remedies out there with Alan Wake 2 and that's one of the few things you can point to where it's like yeah that's going to be an awesome next gen experience this is going to be this is why we have new consoles this is why you have that new video card because there isn't a lot else out there that I think is is going to is going to tap into that it's it really is a sign of you know maybe you'd put it down to industry consolidation in some ways maybe we're still dealing with the effects of the like the the covid hangover when it comes to production pipelines maybe maybe it's all of that but it did feel like they were they were struggling to fill the run of that show with a lot of new stuff which is why you end up with oh, like admittedly charming bits like here's nicholas cage in dead by daylight that's awesome. I'm I'm thrilled to have Nicolas Cage come out and talk about his relationship to Dead by Daylight, but ultimately, that's a new Dead by Daylight character. You know, that's yeah. that's what we are. Yeah. That's what we're here. That's what we're here talking about. We 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 took time to show the Witcher season three trailer. <laughs> we know the Witcher three is coming out. We didn't need Game Fest to tell us that. Oh, and also, the, like I, again, the <clears throat> vibes on the vibes on Henry Cavill being the star of that trailer after like he's no longer associated with that show as of season four is just like so fucking weird. It's such a weird thing to do uh, on that large of a stage. It's like here's a bunch of people who somehow came together to fumble the bag. Mostly <laughs> Henry Cavill. <laughs> it's yeah. wild. It's 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 wild too. Like that. That that one bit of like getting Nicolas Cage out, um, that trailer dropped like two weeks ago, <laughs> like that wasn't even the first time they were showing it. Like they couldn't even hold it back for Game Fest. Like they announced that a while ago. It feels like it might, it might have been last week, but still, this was that was not the first time we were seeing that. The, the stuff that was new was seeing actual gameplay footage. But again, like you mentioned, it's a character for a long running series being dropped. It's like. The same. This is it's the same thing that happened for Street Fighter, right? Like there's like, and here's some DLC that we're announcing for Exo Primal. Exo Primal is getting Street Fighter DLC. Was the big reveal, which you know what? I think that's funny as fuck. Yeah. Like, do I think it's good? No. Is it funny as hell? Yes. It is extremely funny. I think it was. Uh, here's what I will say. I think Exo Primal is already in kind of a weird space, just in terms of like marketing cycle, where this game is is coming soon like it's it's here basically and so it's not really fodder for the game for us the game fest like main stage Mm -hmm. but they found a way they found a way (laughs) to remind us that they have two big games uh that are like in their launch windows right now and wouldn't it be cool if some of these iconic characters were fighting dinosaurs (laughs) and you know what you know yeah there's something to to that fighting dinosaurs yeah, I'm. T- uh, I'm here for that. 
I'll tell you what I'm excited for from this. The one thing that I'm actually excited for is uh, Remnant 2. I'm very excited for Remnant yeah. 2. Yeah. Remnant from the Ashes had a great time. Played it kind of yeah. late. Didn't finish. Was playing with some friends. Didn't didn't make it all the way through. Uh, but I was like that. Felt like not perfect. It felt like maybe they didn't even know what they had as they were making it or something. It like sort of slipped under the radar. I started playing it because of Austin's rave about it on on this on the previous incarnation of this podcast a couple of years ago. Uh, I'm really excited to see what that team put together. Uh, having thought about what they made and like iterating on it. I. I, I I'm I'm hyped for it. That that one does look good. I uh I find it so it's such a it's a cool idea, but also I find it a little disorienting when it is like it it seems to be a game set in pastiche land. And mm-hmm. so it is it's 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 a cool idea, but also at the same time it feels a bit like um oh man, Souls like ready player one. Just a little <laughs> bit. Just a little bit. <laughs> You, I think that's a good way to rail of I, action RPG horror. I, I think that's a pretty good way to put it. it. It wasn't like there was some great story or setting in the previous one. I mean, there was like desert world where you could shoot weird guys in the leg or swampy world where you could shoot guys in the leg. Gotta have your and swamps. The, <laughs> yeah. And the, and the fun part was just, you know, it was a fun loop to do with your friends. Um, and yeah. that was like, uh, a little bit like a 3D Souls like Diablo kind of experience where like, hey, let's just load up and blast some guys and then gear up again and do it again and and while well, we chit chat. And that's a that's a a niche in my gaming life I would love to have refilled with some with some new shit to do. Now but will Matrix there be room <laughs> Will there be room for it in anyone's heart when we're all busy playing Lies of P? Such a good question. Such a good question, Rob. Um, listen, I can't wait to see that twink just get put through a grinder. You know, like I, I, I hope there are spike traps. I want to see this twink obliterated. Ooh, I want to see. I want to see off-brand Timothy Chalamet just, just ruined. Ooh, get him. Um, but otherwise, like Liza P seems fine. It'll be good. Yeah. I'll, I'm excited. I'll, I'll play it when it comes out. Like. But other than other than how much I want to see that little man just get ooh rough and tumbled up, uh, I uh, it's 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 you know it keeps showing up and I keep going. Yeah, I'm st- I'm, st- I'm still here for it. Yeah, well, yes, but it does keep showing up. And here was Game Fa- Games Fest being like, remember this? It's like remember? yeah, just from Not like weeks ago, Jeff. <laughs> uh, and I think so. I think in some ways. You know the the lack of the the lack of variety that, that show is struggling against. I think also contributes to what what turned into a major talking point around it, which is that hey, this entire show went by, and in the immortal words of um, Hail Caesar, no dames, no women, and I believe <laughs> if I'm remembering correctly, one one person of color on stage throughout the entire conference, which is like statistically unlikely because because i'll be honest it's really easy it's 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 really easy to know brown people and women like it's not hard i do it every day i was gonna do it every day it's 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 staggering the degree to which it is an, it is an embarrassment if i was running that show if i was on that show i would feel bad i would be embarrassed that i put on that show with absolutely zero women well, I think so. I think it's 
partly on the show, but then also all the devs who came through and had no like who are we gonna send? Oh, we'll send the the white male lead, uh, you know, creative to to go out and do this. It kind of reveals one who is getting to lead on these projects. Yeah. And two, it is revealing who it gets considered for public facing opportunities. Yeah. And so, like, you know, we could have, uh, you know, we could we could have done without some of the visits from people that Jeff has known for ages and have been around for ages because a lot of them didn't have that much to talk about. Again, like there just isn't that much new stuff happening in the world of like Marvel, Marvel snap, for instance, we don't need that segment. And so I think, you know, this is, well, game fest needs that segment is the issue, right? Like the things Mm. that they could pull out of people, the structure of the show. Yeah. Yeah. They're just like, we need to fill what is round, right? Like, which was like an hour, which doesn't seem like that much time until you're up there doing it for an hour. Right. And also like all of the interviews were, just some of the worst vibes I've ever seen on a stage. They were, they, I, I'm, I'm still thinking about Jeff Keeley saying something to Nicolas Cage after he'd been like, all right, bye. I'm walking off stage now. And then Jeff Keeley said something and he like half turned and like waved. It was, it was just really dark. No, hang and on. Was, hang on. Okay. Okay. Am Who I being among unfair? us Awful. has not fucked up? a farewell with somebody where you're like, I wanted to shake hands. The other person's leaving. And now you're like left hanging. And now there's like, uh, maybe we should just hug. You know, I, Look, I'm not a, yeah, but I'm I, not a, I'm not a stage professional. It happens to everyone. <laughs> Look, I'm a stage, I'm a stage professional and I do handshake into fist bump back into handshake. You know, that move where you're like, which are mm-hmm. we doing? I do that a hundred times a day. So, it, it does happen to everybody, but it it is uh, it it's uncomfortable. You, they <laughs> don't think, need more I think moments. Maybe of sometimes you just have like to admit you're stage. not going to get to you're not going to get to touch Nick Cage. Yeah, sometimes just you just gotta it, just let it you go, just got to let him go. Just let it go. Goodbye, Nick Cage. <laughs> you don't Goodbye. have touching. You don't have touching Nick Cage vibes, and yeah. like sometimes you have to like look yourself in the mirror and acknowledge that. And you're just going <laughs> to think about, like, he might never make another video game. And yeah. he was there five feet away from me. And I just couldn't, couldn't oh, reach yeah, out yeah. and take and his we're, hand. We're not cool like that. Nick Cage and I are not cool like that. And I just have to, I just have to live with that for the rest of my life. <laughs> All right, Adam, as you were saying. Oh, I was just going to say there's this meme going around. I've seen a couple times of like, you never know when the last time is going to be the last time you do something. You never know when the last time is you're going to pick up your your son because he got too big. And one time is going to be the last. And you never know the last time you're going to talk to Nick Cage on the Summer Games <laughs> Fest stage. I'll never come yeah. back. And that's those are the stations of life we pass through. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But yeah, like I think you know, there's there's elements of there, there there's segments that were sort of misguided, but I also just think it's it's one of those things where I think in a lot of creative fields the number of opportunities is diminishing, the entrenchment of people who've always been in the creative leadership positions and like the executive positions is they're still there, they remain entrenched. And then as you see fewer products being made and, you know, brought to market, you see fewer opportunities to bring people to the fore. And so I, I can see how you, you end up where it's very easy to end up with a show like this 
where you're talking to, when you come down to it, a pretty small number of developers covering a pretty small number of projects. And what do you know? More than half of them are the old guard. And nobody thinks there's anything weird about that. Yeah. Until it's kind of revealed, it, you know, kind of it's it's obvious to people watching it. And then it is especially heightened by being followed by Day of the Devs. Yeah. Which was a really good stream. It was a, was a really good stream, but also, again, kind of an astounding, a, a kind of astounding lack of people of color. Like, like especially for like an indie showcase. Um, kind of staggering. Um, and so like even that is like compromised in this way, um, which is like really frustrating. You know, there's this uh, uh, th- there's this thing that's happened in in my industry in the entertainment industry that uh, we've noticed, which is that uh, you know in the wake of the events of 2020, there was a real emphasis put on. Uh, diversity for uh, not the first time, but to a really intense degree. Um, and two things happened. One, a lot of people were hired and a lot of projects were greenlit uh, by, you know, marginalized creators. Uh, but a lot of times they didn't make their way into the power structure. People were hired at the lower level or they given the opportunity to make one show. Yeah. And then eventually yep. that show is canceled. But that didn't make its way to the executive ranks at most companies for obvious reasons, because the people holding the power still don't want to give it up. The other thing that became apparent over the last couple of years is that for a lot of people, because it was so related to the events of 2020, the massive uprising in the wake of George Floyd's murder, a lot of those people in power essentially saw it as a fad. They were like, this is something that we have to do for one year, you know, and just like get a lot of people hired. And then they forgot about it the following year. And so we've really experienced, at least in my corner of the world, this same thing where it's like, hold on a second. What happened? I thought that, you know, didn't we do this two years ago? Didn't we have these conversations? Uh, And uh, it it really makes you appreciate how much sustained effort it takes from everybody in order to make any headway in terms of uh, uh, diversity or, or, you know, inclusion, uh, uh, you know, in any kind of creative medium you really have to give a shit about it for a long time and it has become very apparent that a lot of people actually don't um and it's not really one of their values uh and it's disheartening but you know i don't know still got to keep fighting for it yeah it's um and and it's it's very clear like from something like day of the devs that the indie movement the indie marketplace has not been a like it isn't solving that problem uh, mm-hmm. it, it, that is not going to be that that is not going to be the thing that that turns this turns this around. Uh, but that that being said, like they they were there were a lot of charming presentations. Uh, you know, different a different range of spokespeople for these for these games, uh, and a lot of frankly really cool looking games as well. I would I would say like it, there was a there were a lot of moments in that stage of the stream where I found myself getting genuinely excited about some of the stuff that that I was saying um you know to like for instance I realized that maybe secretly I yearn I yearn to run away to Transylvania I didn't know that <laughs> but I do uh yeah I, I I was I wrote down more things to like keep an eye on during that that part of the stream than than during the the summer game says part of it I was what, just what's like, what's sort of top of mind Kyler? I'll I mean, I it's basically a list of 
almost everything that was on that thing. I mean, there was, you know, there was viewfinder that, that like, uh, take a photo and like put it in the world and then it becomes part of the like structure and you can like walk on it and all that. Right. It changes the landscape depending on what's yes. on the picture. That one seems great. Uh, haunty, the one where you're a ghost that like can haunt, uh, objects in the world to do like puzzles and stuff. That looks great. Hellskate fucking Tony Hawk's but you're a yeah. demon and you fight other demons that's, that's great <laughs> like it seems fun I don't I, know shit about the shepherd game Summerhill like you know but god damn much, it don't I want to shepherd I some know sheep? I don't <laughs> how much game is there I have no idea who, and who I may knows? not care it might it might hell if you have like a uh an hour of a of a like lovely experience maybe that's enough you know um there was beastie ball the fucking Pokemon, but Pokemon on a on like a tactical grid situation where they're playing volleyball. That sounds fun as hell. I just want to say I'm so happy that we have not one but two demon skateboarding games coming out in the next few years. That's 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 a real joy to me. Yeah. yeah. Um I think that I will end up liking Skate Story more just because that game has fucking vibes. Uh that I that I that I like like more. However, uh, I am really excited that we have two different interpretations of what does a skating game about a demon dude look like? How well, excited also, do you um, think the creators of these games are about that? <laughs> <laughs> that there's two of them. I'm curious. Yeah. yeah. I, I feel like that happens in our industry all the time. Like there, there's just yeah. there, like the good idea comes in a wave and yeah. it, I can never figure out what was like, I, I don't think, I don't think it's like a leap of genius to say skating, but make it demonic or so. I don't think that's, you know, that's not that much of a reach. <laughs> it's but in the air. It is funny. You don't get it. You like, you don't get it for years. And then multiple teams are like, Hey, Tony Hawk was great. So's doom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, and, and, uh, you know, speaking personally, I think that in a few years we're going to get the, persona but it's a tactics game we're gonna get we're gonna get a bunch of those in the next few years which is great for me but like it does happen in waves like that you're right um ren you also connected with mars first logistics uh yeah, yeah. uh you, you mentioned that it it reminded you of your days on a robotics team Yes, it did. It reminded me a lot of like the very specific kind of challenges you would have to do for like a first robotics competition. A lot of it was like, how do you pick up this weirdly shaped object properly? Um, so like building systems that could like, for example, collect like dozens of like wiffle balls or like, um, you know, one of the things that the robot that we made did was it would like collect a bunch of wiffle balls, was able to move around like these like cogs that you were supposed to move around. And finally, at the end, it would like deploy these wings uh, to its left and right that other robots could drive up onto. And then they would get lifted into the air for additional points. Um, and so like shit like that just is just like candy to my brain. Uh, and Mars first logistics was a lot of me being like, oh yeah, I, I know how to make that. I know how to make that in like, in like flesh world. I would love to make that in video game. Um, <laughs> especially because it's like all deeply, it's all like bespoke functions, right? Like uh, you're, you're building a, a contraption, a device to pick up one specific object 
uh, and to do that one thing very well. And I think that there's something very fun about that, like extremely focused sort of like problem solving, uh, because you get a lot of like extremely brilliant stuff where you're like, damn, I can't believe that person came up with such an elegant solution to this problem. You could apply this to a ton of different situations and it would work. And you also get the ugliest piece of shit you've ever seen. And I think that both of those things are moral goods. Okay. I have a confession here. Yeah. Hit me, Rob. I was a middle school science Olympian. That was a little, that was a little little traveling competition where you solve little, little engineering problems. It wasn't like a robotics competition. It was all like simple machines type stuff. Uh, You know, it was, it it was that kind of, you'd be just like a robotics competition though. You'd be set a brief. Here's the problem you're trying to solve. Now, how do you and your team go about solving it? And one of the things that I ended up on was, uh, well, what we built was a catapult and most people built a catapult. Right. Because it was a launch a tennis ball to hit targets, different ranges mm-hmm. and more points closer to the center of the target, et cetera. Ranges got pretty far out. And we we had a great little catapult. We'd ranged it in really perfectly. Uh, it was it was terrific. And we were feeling really good about when we were going to the state event uh, after crushing it at the like regional event. And yeah, we are off to a good, pretty good start there. Um, we see a lot of other catapults, but those are fine. And then somebody shows up with a PVC pipe that's been bored out to be perfectly, uh, like perfectly sized for a tennis ball. And they've got uh, a pressure pressurized a pressure chamber that they can sort of dial in the amount of pressure and fire that thing. And the minute you saw a fire once, you knew you were cooked. Like it was everyone had looked at the brief and was like, they're telling us to build a catapult. And these folks have been like, well, they didn't say you can't build a pneumatic cannon. And it was like it was done. So, but that's part of the joy, too, is like you also get like those competitions do kind of really make you respectful of how rare genuine ingenuity is, how like how lateral a thought can can just per- prove to be the actual perfect solution to the problem as opposed to the thing that everyone else is kind of like this is probably the way to tackle it yeah i mean like that is the other fun thing is is also when you go to the competitions and you're like oh i see who, who goes to the school with a budget oh i see very clearly who goes to the school with a budget here when like a team is <laughs> like yeah we flew in from hawaii you did what from where <laughs> to get here this is pennsylvania that's true in, in my head canon the kids who brought the pneumatic cannon uh were probably from nutrier and fuck those kids um yeah i i i really enjoy those competitions is the thing and also like you know sometimes the, the really shitty ones also work very well uh, oh, yeah. i will say that the the team that i worked on was like extremely underfunded however we had like a pretty like the thing about the wings raising up so this was a year so every year first robotics competition does like a um different challenge effectively and they like make a new game and with like a new theme and this was for the steampunk year uh and basically we built this robot and like one of the final challenges was you got like a huge amount of extra points if you were able to successfully lift the other like successfully get robots off of the ground uh and so what we provided was like most of our stuff was like pretty standard uh with the exception of this system at the end that would deploy these two wings down and other people would drive up on them and then we would use these effectively like levered um 
uh, wheels to like push out and lift up these like 150 pound robots because these like 150 to 200 pounds uh, on these like plexiglass wings. It would like lift them up and like the 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 times that it like capital W worked, it was like really effective. We actually almost got pretty far until uh, I got so stressed. I was the president and also the driver. Uh, and also had been rejected from 12 colleges uh, while I was at the competition. I got the email that I'd been rejected from 12 colleges. And so in our final thing before we got to the semifinals, I walked onto the field in a stupor, like completely blacked out and apparently had scored for the wrong team and had been like driving <laughs> oh, the no. best I've ever driven, but scoring for the wrong team. And like that is what that is what killed our chances at going like further in that competition despite having like a pretty efficient design was like me getting stressed out to the point of like full dissociation and autopiloting scoring for the other team it was one of the darkest moments of my high school career it sounds like an episode of a sports anime about a robotics competition yeah oh you have no idea because i got the emails about me being rejected from all of the colleges and i'm like sitting outside after like this i have this like breakdown on the field uh, I'd like carried it off. Of, I carried this like 150 pound robot off the field with like one of our other people. I did not wait long enough for the other person to show up. So I tried to carry it myself, which I did do, but it was not a good idea. Uh, and then finally I'm outside, like sitting on this bench crying and this dude who I've never met before walks up to me and he's like, you always have another chance next year. And I was like, you do not know what is going on here, but I appreciate the effort. <laughs> and like, that was some real, that was some real, like in the sports anime, that guy would have become my rival. <laughs> that guy would have become yeah. my like my, my like my like rival companion who I like see at all the other competitions and we'd like develop a friendship over the course of years. Um but instead it was my last competition and I had just been rejected from 12 colleges. So uh there was more going on than me taking an L at FRC. <laughs> but no, those competitions are super fun. Sometimes I think about mentoring for them uh, as an adult because I think that like they're really cool. Yeah, it's um Th- those events, those those events are a lot of fun, and they're a really great taste of. I don't know. It's 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 wrong to say like other careers because that's not what it's really about. It's 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 a task so different from what you do in school, just day to day. Yeah, it's just fun to like apply problem solving and creativity in like this completely different direction. Uh, and that stuff that stuff is great. And that 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 game, uh, you know. What is it? Mar- Mars, Mars first logistics. Yeah, well, I love it already because it's got logistics right there in the I title. I love it because it has first right in there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and Mars, you know, and Mars is pretty great too. I love how the trailer shows them building Rocket League in the game. That's like part of the trailer is you can build <laughs> Rocket League in this game. <laughs> that's that's an interesting choice, but okay. Um. Yeah, so it was it was a it, it was you know it was an interesting show. Uh, I think we didn't watch day of, uh, we didn't watch the Devolver thing live. I think the Devolver thing also kind of indicates how much things have slowed down a little bit. You know, you go back to Devolver from five ten years ago, and it's just a you know confetti cannon of games, and now it's like here's four, here's a handful of games. And they're and they're again they're big indie right like Tal- Talos Principle is you know it's a Devolver game but it's also now clearly got like budget behind it 
Um, and the first one did too, really. So even even a place like Devolver, you can kind of sense uh, that the that the wind has shifted a little bit. Uh, you know, we will we'll leave it there because there's another thing I want to talk talk about. Speaking of like wind shifting, and that is of course the WGA strike. So uh, Adam, I see you've been missing a lot of work lately. <laughs> Yeah, I just been too busy playing Zelda. I haven't done any television writing. Uh, yeah, no, my uh, uh, my union, the Writers Guild of America, is on strike right now. Uh, we've been on strike for we're in our, we're just wrapping up our sixth week on strike. Uh, what do you want to know about it, Rob? Everything. Uh, <laughs> I want to know. Like, so, I mean, obviously, there's there's a version of this conversation where we go back to the 1920s, I suppose. And start yeah. talking about that, but I guess you know maybe this is the this is the place to work backwards from. Uh, so then, where the sure. WJ strike has been on for a bit, I think. Yeah. Last week there was a lot of talk about SAG-AFTRA, uh, sort Correct. of signing on to. Uh, they sign on to strike as well. Um, uh, so or was it SAG? Yeah, SAG-AFTRA, of which I'm also a member. Um, although, uh, so let me say this first of all. Uh, for the Writers Guild of America, I'm on the board of the Writers Guild of America West, which is one of the two unions that makes up the Writers Guild of America. I'm also on a negotiating committee, so I'm fully a member of leadership. Uh, SAG-AFTRA, I'm just a member of. I've been on a committee or two, but I, I'm not, you know, in the in the decision making body of that union. So, so I talk about those two unions very differently. Um, uh, in the Writers Guild, I'm I'm like a straight up politician, <laughs> like who's who's been elected by my peers. SAG-AFTRA, I'm just a member. Uh, SAG-AFTRA, though, we took a strike authorization vote, uh, which means that uh, if if it were to pass, it allows the leadership to call a strike if necessary. And uh, earlier this week, we got the news that the vote passed by, I believe, 98 percent with almost 50 percent of the union voting, which are astronomical numbers for SAG-AFTRA. Uh, just to put this in a little bit of context, the Writers Guild is a union where we have about 10,000 members, 11,000 members, and uh, you have to you basically have to be a currently working writer in order to vote. SAG-AFTRA is a union that has 160,000 members, and if you just were cast in one role five years ago, ten years ago, you could possibly still be a voting member. So I know like members of the Writers Guild who are also SAG-AFTRA members because they did like a cameo on their own show, and they're in in the Screen Actors Guild. Um, so it's you know there are it, that union has a sort of scale problem organizing its members, um, you know, turning them all out to all out to vote because there's so many of them and many of them are maybe not working that much. They might be disengaged. So in that context, having 50 percent of the members vote yes and 98 percent of them vote in favor are huge numbers, shows that there's massive support for a strike if necessary. Um, and SAG-AFTRA is now in negotiations with the AMPTP, which is the consortium or cartel, if you want to, however you want to call it, of uh, entertainment industry companies. They're in negotiations with them. Their contract is up at the end of June, at which point, uh, if they have not reached a deal, they they have the ability to call a strike. Um, that uh, It's still anyone's guess how likely a strike is. Um, I sort of am downplaying the chances a little bit. I'm not sure it's incredibly likely, but it's really, it would be all speculation um, if I were to, if I were to guess one way or the other. Uh, real quick, can you kill your camera? Oh, sorry. Oh, you want me to turn off my camera? Yeah. Um, okay. 
was it it was All getting right, we'll choppy because right. there's definitely some dropouts uh we're, we're getting hit with uh at least on at least on my end um okay great did you miss anything you sound, important you, you sound better no uh it came through okay good uh usually it was like it was catching one word but you hear what the word was and be able to fill in the blank so it was it was fine okay got it so let's let's talk about that because uh you know you and i were having this conversation uh you know a few weeks ago just about the the structure of these negotiations. I think that's an important thing for folks to understand. The Writers Guild uh, strike has been getting a lot of attention. Uh, it, you know, it's a it, it is a huge it is a huge strike that's already in a lot of ways brought uh, a lot of production to a standstill. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, you often hear conversations about the guilds in the entertainment industry, the the different unions that are, that are represented there. How, like, how do all these pieces fit, fit together? Um, you know, why is it, why has it been so hard to get the various labor organizations on the same page when it comes to uh, like ne- negotiating as a negotiating against effectively studio executives? Yeah. Um, it's because we're different unions with different uh, political structures that uh, respond to their members and the and the pressures that their members are feeling differently, and that has to do with their long histories. I mean, the the short answer is that every union you should look at as almost like a nation with its own history, its own people, its own political structure, um, its own remembered traumas and victories. Uh, and that, and its own foreign policy towards the other unions. It's as difficult for the Writers Guild and SAG-AFTRA or the DGA or IATSE, which is the crew union, um, or the Teamsters, which is the truck driver union that also represents lots of other truck drivers. Those are the, 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 uh, big Hollywood, the, the five big Hollywood unions. It's as difficult for them to get along and find common purpose as it is for the U.S. and the U.K. or Germany or, you know, uh, Japan, right? And those are countries that normally have a lot in common. But, um, you know, so when uh, when the head of the Writers Guild meets the head of SAG-AFTRA, a lot of times it's difficult for them to even understand the political pressures that each other are facing, um, let alone get on the same page. Uh, so, you know, for instance, the um, the Writers Guild operates uh, extremely democratically. Like I said, we have about 11,000 members um, we are, uh, the leadership is directly elected by the members. Um, you know, when I ran for office, I, uh, put my, uh, my statement together. Um, I, you know, it's, uh, my statement is emailed to the entire membership. They go online, they vote for me. Uh, and they voted for someone who's sort of directly affecting policy. There's 16 board members. I'm one of them. And we're directly voting on what's happening. Um, SAG-AFTRA is so huge there are literally hundreds of different positions that people vote for, um, like that are delegates to the national convention. And then at the national convention, the, the, the people at the national convention vote on policy and uh, elect other people, right? There's like levels of separation between the voter and the policy being made. Uh, and uh, as a result, it's evolved an entirely different political culture. Um, they have multiple political parties in SAG-AFTRA, which is unfortunate, but, uh, you know, leads to a lot of dysfunction. Um and, uh, uh, you know, they have different his- – uh, the unions have different historical attitudes towards going on strike. They have different negotiating strategies with the companies. And so all of these factors together can make it a little bit difficult to get on the same page. What we're seeing this year, though, is 
the Hollywood unions are uh, more united than they have been in probably 50 years. Um, and I would say that's largely because the companies have been so ruthless about squeezing labor in our industry that uh, their memberships are feeling it to such a degree that the political structures, even though each union has a different political structure and some are more responsive than others, they're all feeling the heat right now. Um, so, you know, we have, just to give you an example of this, the last time the writers go went on strike was in 2007. When we did, the crew union, IATSE, publicly opposed the strike, like in the press. They said, this strike is bad, we do not support it. And that was like materially harmful to the strike. This year, the crew union, IATSE, is um, supporting the strike. In fact, they are encouraging their members to respect our picket lines and not cross them, which means that we are able to more readily shut down shows with their assistance, which means we're able to shorten the strike because we're inflicting more economic pain on the companies. And... Uh, you know, I, I can't speak for IATSE's leadership, but I think part of the reason they're doing that is because their members are also under immense strain and they realize we might have a tough fight next year. And so let's support the Writers Guild this year so they support us. Um, so the the sort of facts on the ground, the overall environment are, is really affecting, uh, you know, how these individual unions deal with each other. And it's causing a bit of a sea change in the way Hollywood labor works. So, so I have a quick question. The one exception sure. that's currently is the DGA, right? In terms of like solidarity across unions currently, because I uh, one of my friends uh, locally in SAG after was just talking about the 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 DGA acting much more similarly to management uh, than than uh, uh, the rest of the unions. Yeah, I mean, look, I have to uh, I have to be a little bit of a politician here. We've had enormous solidarity from DGA members. Uh, we're very happy that so the DGA reached a tentative deal with the studios. Uh, it's up to their members to decide whether or not that deal is good enough for them. Um, but, uh, you know, historically the way that the DGA has, uh, been positioned by the studios is that they, uh, the studios like the DGA to cut a deal first so that they can then pattern that deal onto the other unions. They say, well, the DGA took this, so you should yeah. take it too. That's what they did in 2007, for instance. Um, in 2007, the Writers Guild was on strike for the main issue was coverage of the Internet, which is what we now call streaming. And we were on strike for good terms. We wanted good you know, residuals uh, from streaming. While we were on strike, the DGA went into negotiations and they cut a deal with the AMPTP that included coverage of the Internet, which they only got because the Writers Guild was on strike. Um, and it also included what those initial residuals would be. And uh, the uh, you know that put pressure on the Writers Guild to accept those terms too. Whereas uh, you know there was if the Writers Guild had stayed on strike for a couple more weeks in the absence of that DGA deal, uh, the terms the final terms may have been better for everybody. Uh, and, and so that's the that's sort of the historical role that the DGA has played. I think that's less likely to happen this year. Um, mm -hmm. because uh, the issues that the Writers Guild is fighting for are not things that the DGA can uh, negotiate for us. They're things like the existence of the writer's room, which is not part of the DGA's contract, so they're not able to go right. negotiate that out from under us. Um, but, uh, Ren, I'd say what your friend in the industry is saying is is largely uh, correct. <laughs> That's, uh, uh, but, you know, th this is... Like I said, it gets complicated because it's interunion politics, you know. Um, right. Uh, 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 at, at the same time, 
that politics can sometimes be a little bit of a sideshow because uh, at the end of the day, it's it's member power, which, which is what wins. And that's what the Writers Guild is leveraging right now. And, and SAG-AFTRA is as well with their big vote. Right. You mentioned that IATC has a negotiate, like they have a deal coming up next year. So, I believe so, yeah. Okay. So like your question then for, because speaking of these politics, like, so IATC is supporting the writer's strike. And ideally that means that, uh, you know, the, the strike will be, you know, victorious and you'll get really good terms and work conditions will improve, et cetera. Uh, now flash forward a year mm-hmm. and IATC is up for a negotiation Ideally, of course, you know, you would see maybe the the positive pattern laid out in the deal, the WGA uh, strikes and like the, the, the WGA ends up settle like settling on. You'd see the good stuff there sort of poured it over. But if you didn't, the Nazi sort of s- sitting there saying like, hey, they're still trying to turn the screws on us. Um, is there a world where like the WGA ends up immediately turning around back in back on strike in a supporting strike for Nazi? Well, we can't under labor law do a solidarity strike. Solidarity okay. strikes are largely illegal, A, because of labor law, and B, because our contract contains a no strike clause, which means we cannot, as a union, go on strike while we have a contract. We can only go on strike once our contract expires. Mm-hmm. However, what we use instead is a provision in labor law that says, even even if your union has a no strike clause, it is every individual worker's individual right not to cross a picket line. And so what IATSE has said to their members is, we have a no strike clause. We cannot call a strike in solidarity with the Writers Guild. However, it is your individual right to respect the Writers Guild picket line and hint, hint, we don't mind if you do, right? And so they can sort of quietly use the cultural, you know, the culture of their union to respect the picket line and the soft power of encouraging and organizing their members to respect our picket lines um, and, uh, in effect, shut shows down. So we can do the same thing, right? If IATSE were to be on strike and they were to be, you know, picketing a studio entrance that I had to cross in order to go to a writer's room, um, the Writers Guild is not uh, you know, joining a solidarity strike, but I could say I'm not crossing that fucking picket line, right? Because I'm a good, I'm a good union member. I'm not going to work, and neither is any member of my show. And we're going to shut that. You know, we're going to shut down our writers' room. And in fact, we're going to go join those members on the picket line. You know, and uh, IATSE and SAG-AFTRA have made signs, right, uh, for our strike um, and T-shirts, so that that we know that they're there on our picket line. We're certainly going to do the same thing for theirs. Uh, et cetera. And that is like material solidarity that is uh, really, really important. So stepping back now, like surveying like the landscape where this is all happening, because this is yeah, this is part of the this is where it maybe gets a little bit confusing. Uh, it's so strange. There's I feel like every year there's a wave of stories about the streaming model is broken. Nobody's making money yeah. off it. It's not it's not working. The industry is in crisis. And then you see media executive like like or studio executive compensation packages just astronomical, just just enormous, mm-hmm. uh, like yeah. pl- plutocrat numbers, quarter of a and, billion dollars a year. Some of them earned. Right. And so and yet it does feel like a lot of people do also suspect something is deeply broken about the streaming model beyond just like who is skimming the cream off the top. So what is happening here? 
Uh, and how is that re- like relating to the fact that like you have all these labor or- labor organizations who historically haven't really like acted as one, all of them suddenly feeling like there is an existential like crisis they're in the midst of. Yeah, I think there's a couple of different dynamics happening simultaneously. Um, one of them is that the streaming model people are starting to believe is fundamentally unsustainable, not unprofitable because, uh, you know, um, uh, Netflix still made tons of profit. Their revenues are still going up, um, but unsustainable, like not unprofitable for the companies and the people at the top, but unprofitable for the town as a whole. Uh, and there's a lot of complicated business reasons for that. One of them is that, uh, okay. So like 15 years ago, this was a market where a, the people who made the show were generally from different from the people who broadcast the show. You had the studio who made the show, and then they sold it to the network who broadcast the show, right? The and classic vertical integration bo- thing. Yeah, and, and, and instead, Netflix says, we're now both, right? We're both of those things simultaneously. And so that means instead of one party making something and selling it to somebody else, now it's just all made in-house. So it's difficult to know like how much it's worth, right? Also means that when something's canceled, you can't take it somewhere else. Etc. The other problem is the disappearance of advertising temporarily from the industry. Netflix's whole promise was, you know, $15 a month, you get every show ever made, and there'll never be any ads. First of all, that entire promise, clearly unsustainable. That was a lie that they told the public. They told the public, you get every show ever for 15 bucks a month. They used to pay 100 bucks for cable. Now it's $15. They were lying to people. They had temporary licenses on these shows. And by the way, they were always going to bring advertising in because no business has ever collected that amount of user data without eventually selling it to advertisers. That's the model. Um, but and there's nothing wrong if, with that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, so not to get ahead of myself here. Um, that, that means that a lot of the uh, the two things that that took away are, A, the indicators of what is doing well. Because now you have no... <clears throat> You have no public ratings data, which was invented to appease advertisers. That's why ratings exist in order to tell advertisers how many people are watching shows. That's that's what Nielsen's business model is. But uh, we don't have those numbers because uh, they're all kept internally. And nobody knows how much anything is actually worth because nobody's selling anything to anyone anymore. Netflix just makes it and put it puts it up. And when Netflix has a big hit that they spent a lot of money on, they say a lot of people watched, it's completely unclear how that translates to revenue for them because it it's drives – Okay, uh, this new show is going to drive how many people to pay them $15 a month? It's like they might know the answer, but how is anyone else going to know? Um, so it creates all of this obfuscation uh, that makes it difficult to know how much anything is actually worth. Um, now, I think some of that is going to naturally change because advertising is now coming back into the industry and it's going to transform it in ways that even Netflix doesn't anticipate. Because as soon as a bunch of your revenue becomes advertising, the advertisers are now calling the shots and the advertisers can demand you know, publicly available data and et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I, I think in five years, we're going to look back at the Netflix, HBO Max sort of era of the streaming model as being a blip, as being an unstable business model that eventually had to sort of reach a new equilibrium that involved more advertising and more shows being sold to each other. Um, uh, so there, so that's the streaming model piece. The more important thing, I think, is that the uh, companies have pursued a strategy of, of like eroding and ending the norms that 
allowed everyone other than the CEOs to make money in this business. Uh, so, for instance, uh, they ended, just to talk about the millionaires first, they, they ended profit participation for producers. It used to be that if you sold a television show um, and you're an executive producer on it, you would negotiate for part of the back end, which meant that anytime the show was sold to a different buyer or they made profit off of, you would receive a certain number of points. You would receive 2% or whatever it is, right? Um, when Netflix came along, they said, well, hold on a second. We own the show. We're never going to sell to anybody else. So there's no such thing as back end. So instead, what we're going to do is we're going to give you a bonus up front. Uh, we'll give you an extra 100 grand or 500 grand, depending on who you are, um, instead of uh, giving you any profit participation in the show. Well, fast forward to you know five, seven years later, they don't pay people those bonuses anymore, but also nobody receives the back end. Um, and so this entire sort of upper middle class of television producer who was, you know, previously uh, able to, you know, buy a big fancy house because they worked in television is no longer able to. Now, that's the millionaires. They've also been doing the same thing to all of the unions. They've been eroding these norms that have made sure that people could, uh, you know, make a living in this town uh, really, really deliberately. So an example of that is that they're trying to end the writer's room in television. The writer's room is a structure that isn't in our contract, but has resulted in, you know, uh, uh, write, television writing being a middle-class income because when you're hired, you're there for like half a year or so. Um, and then you go to set and you, you know, learn how to produce and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the companies in recent years have said, oh, hold on a second. We could save a lot of money if we separate the writer's room from production so we don't send writers to set anymore. We make the writer's room smaller. Uh, we ask, you know, three people to write 10 episodes instead of eight people write 10 episodes. Um, and uh, uh, pretty soon they're going to stop having a writer's room altogether and they're just going to assign the scripts to freelancers. And so as a result of that, we are looking for a structural change in our contract where we're saying we, we want to codify that norm. We want to codify in our contract that there must be a writer's room and that writers must be sent to set and writers must be paid through post. All these rather arcane contractual issues. Um, but the effort is to uh, you know, enshrine into our contract a norm that the companies have deliberately broken. And I, I think that IATSE, the crew union, has its own version of that story. SAG-AFTRA has its own version of that story. The DGA might have less of it, which is maybe why they settled this year um, rather than going out on strike. Uh, but that sort of it's, – it's, I think, a story that is very typical of capitalism in America right now. The people at the top figuring out how to separate the people at the bottom from more and more of their wages while centralizing the money in themselves – so I think the fact that you see David Zaslav or Ted Sarandos make $250 million a year is, a, is, is part and parcel of this story. I think I had a great, like one thing I want to just look at the sort of the sums involved and who is across the, the table on some of these things, though. It does kind of feel it does kind of feel like you have to drive a stake through their fucking heart. If the long term trajectory of the industry is going to be stable, right? Because, like, to an extent, the amount of money these folks have at their disposal, the amount of resources they have, like, they can, them personally can weather storms that a union membership broadly couldn't. They might not be able to weather those storms in power. That, you know, that's a different situation. But they personally do not have skin in the game the way a working writer does. Yeah. And, 
to an extent, when you look at so much of this and, uh, you know, there's, there's a bit of this in, in, in tons of industries where like, why is it all gotten so hard? And it's because like all the, all the profit is being eaten up by the people at the very top and come the next negotiation. However, like when you look at, when I look at the WGA, like demands, they seem pretty reasonable and pretty yeah. modest compared to the scale of the exact compensation. But also at the same time that like reasonability and modesty is a source of concern because <laughs> these folks are still going to be there in five years and we're going to be doing it again and they're going to be richer and they're going to be, you know, more deeply entrenched. And I think that's, that's kind of the concern is once the industry is hyper concentrated in the hands of people making, you know, large fractions of a billion dollars a year and they don't really care about the creative industries the way maybe executives 40, 50 years ago did. Uh, Mm -hmm. That to me seems like a really bad, really bad portents for things, for things to come. It is. And that's where, you know, antitrust comes into it. Uh, If you look at the history of Hollywood, a a lot of the so uh, there's a writer named Matt Stoller who writes a newsletter called Big. A couple of years ago, he wrote. We had him on the old show. uh, Oh, yeah. Great. He's he's fantastic. He wrote a great piece a couple of years ago about how the uh, uh, the the actions the federal government took to break up uh, Hollywood monopolies and to enforce that breakup is what led to. Uh, you know, all of everyone's favorite media that, you know, the example he uses is Back to the Future, that Back to the Future was a weird pitch for a movie. No one wanted to make it. And basically through the decentralized system of Hollywood, because someone was just able to make it and then get it into theaters, it turned out to be a hit. It caught fire. It went viral and it became a classic. Um, whereas if instead you have a situation where you need to, you need, uh, you know, the say so of this giant corporation, you're not going to get anything other than Marvel movies. Uh, and that's true. <laughs> and uh, the, the the good news about that is that we have had a sea change in the federal government in terms of antitrust enforcement. If you look at the FTC and the DOJ, the people who are leading antitrust there now are the like antitrust radicals. It's people like Lena Khan, uh, Jonathan Cantor, Tim Wu uh, is an incredible uh, thinker on these issues and was working for... Uh, in the White House for a while. I think he might have left recently. Um, But these are the people who are now running the shop and they've got a really big boat to turn. Sorry to mix my metaphors. Uh, But, you know, they have to turn the edifice of the federal government and we hope that they have another four years in which they can do that. Um, But the strange thing is there's actually a certain amount of bipartisan support as well for antitrust um, because the sort of populist wave that's, that swept through the Re- Republican Party is also not a fan of big business or a fan of Hollywood. And so you've got people like Josh Hawley who would probably vote yes to really fuck with Netflix, right, or really fuck with some of these other big studios. Um, and uh, uh, at the very least – that is going to put pre- – one of the things about that kind of enforcement is even if you don't force a breakup of these companies, the increased enforcement might forestall other mergers. Like, you know, the the Warner Discovery merger went through, but the next merger may not. Uh, and that sort of pressure is, like, really critical to to stop what you're talking about. Um, uh, yeah, and we, we'll, we'll, we'll hope that it works. But, you know, all the Writers Guild can do is – Focus on what the needs of our members are and what how we can meet those by 
getting new provisions into our contract and then marshalling member power in order to get them in there. And the fact is, despite all of the consolidation and all of the power those uh, those mega billionaires have, writers have a huge amount of structural power. Nothing starts until the writers start working. And... You know, we have uh, extreme, like in scripted television and film, we have extremely deep penetration. Uh, we have extremely wide coverage of that area. And our members who are currently withholding their labor are, you know, the most talented, experienced, in demand, creative people. And, you know, the companies need them. You know, they they, they do, in fact, need J.J. Abrams. Right? They, they do, in fact, need all these people. And uh, and they do need me and they do need, you know, the the staff writers who are on the picket line as well. Uh, and so, you know, we have the ability to inflict the brute economic harm on them uh, in order to make them come back to the table and deliver the structural changes that we need. Uh, and uh, we're they, they maybe don't realize that right now. And it's going to be you know, we're going to have to be on the picket line until. Uh, people like Ted Sarandos actually go, oh, hold on a second. I'm actually not getting more Stranger Things until I resolve this. Okay, I need to uh, I need to come and actually make a deal. And and that's and that's old fashioned union power. But uh, it really, really works. That's sort of the last thing I, I wanted to ask about is. Like, why is it? um why like why is this time different why why, why do you hold such a winning hand because the, the, the when you say that like for instance all these streaming platforms to an extent have part of the model is look at our vast library you know you could you don't need new shows look at your backlog <laughs> you could just continue subscribing to to our platforms and you know drink deeply of of the back catalog uh you know created by other other creators and we can we can write out a we can write out a writer's strike and yet it it does it does sort of seem like that 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 doesn't really work that that content in that way is not um siege supplies effectively for these studios <laughs> in the way that they might wish it to be yeah, no, it, it frankly isn't. I mean, people want new shit. They just want it. I mean, look at what you guys were saying at the beginning of this about the Summer Games Fest, right? You were like, where's the new shit? We got the DLC. We've got reboots of old things. But I want the I want the new good shit. Um, and that's just how the public feels. I mean, it's. I think everyone's wondered why do they keep making new music when there's so much old music? Because people <laughs> want new people want new things. Um, and. Uh, the fact about these streamers is that they have all, for the most part, topped out in terms of their subscribers in the U.S. Uh, that was what caused Netflix's big bad quarter a year ago was that they lost subscribers globally for the first time because they had topped out not just in the U.S. but other markets as well. Um, they've gotten everybody who is going to subscribe to Netflix to subscribe to Netflix. So now what they're fighting is churn. People now subscribe to Netflix one month at a time. You know, they'll be like, okay, there's a new Strangers thing, Stranger Things. I'll pay 15 bucks, but I'll do the thing where I sign up and then I immediately hit cancel so I don't get charged next month, right? I do that myself. I bet a lot of people listening to this do too. Um, the stat that I saw about a year ago, I wish I could remember where I read it, but it was that every time a subscriber signs up, for a new show, which is mostly what drives subscribe subscriptions, is brand new shows or or uh, new seasons of of hit shows. 
50% of those people have unsubscribed six months later. Um, so the, the, the half-life of a subscriber is six months, which means that they need a constant pipeline of new shows. Um, and they're not going to get any. You know, I, another piece of the story is one of the things that's changed about the industry is, you know, they started taking down old shows. That's because the sort of long-tail approach of that, you know, was was trumpeted at us for decades of there's going to be a huge library, there'll be something for everybody. They're realizing, actually, it does cost us money every day to keep those shows up there, some amount, and sometimes it's not worth it. And so we should just take it down. And what they've started doing is selling the shows to other platforms. Like the, HBO Max took down Westworld uh, a couple months ago. They didn't disappear it. They were selling it to a fast channel, which is a channel like Pluto or these other sort of like fake, you know, free cable channels. Free advertiser-supported television is what it's called. Um, and so they realized they can make more money if they take the library content and they sell it somewhere else where it's going to be new to that audience. Um, and th that's an admission from them that like just sitting on the hits of the past, like Westworld was a bona fide hit sitting on the hits of the past. Isn't going to work. They constantly need new content. Um, you know, uh, Netflix clearly currently believes that they can wait out a strike longer than other, uh, uh, uh other platforms. They've said that specifically in the press. Um, and they think they're going to do it with library content and reality shows, I think, frankly, they're wrong, and they're one of the more vulnerable, um, and they're going to learn that as the strike goes on. I mean, again, no more Stranger Things. That's their Super Bowl, right? That's when they get most of their subscribers every year is when a new Stranger Things comes out, um, and that's going to start hitting them sooner rather than later. Uh, so, yeah. Them I, kids I, are about I, to be 30. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, those kids are growing up. They need to film the shit, you know? But again, like there's that show is fully stopped down, as is Severance and Ted Lasso, Apple TV's biggest hits. Um, the fall, we're getting up to the point where the fall television calendar still makes a lot of money for these companies for CBS, NBC, ABC, Fox. And, you know, ABC had this, you know, at their upfronts, they were like, everything's great. We're just going to do reruns of Abbott Elementary and The Voice. It's going to be so good. Smile. Uh, we're not worried. Ha <laughs> ha. You know, they, they need these shows. Um, so, so we, we, you know, we, we have a lot of leverage that we are, uh, very, very happy to use in this case to get the structural changes we need. For people listening, like, is it helpful to cancel memberships at some of these places? Or is that not an action that, like, the guilds even want people to take right now? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious where, because I think a lot of us have been conditioned to think, well, what can I do as a consumer? Oh, absolutely. To use um, my consumer I, power. Yeah. I, I get this question a lot. Um, the number one principle that everyone should know is if you want to know how to support a union, Ask the union, right? Or, or look for what the union is telling you. Um, and we are not currently asking people to cancel their memberships. And honestly, the main reason for that, in my view, this is just me, my own version of it, is that strikes are stronger than boycotts. Boycotts don't frankly work that well. Um, they're very hard to organize because you, you're only going to hit the people who know about it, right? I mean, for all, you know, conservatives tried to boycott Bud Light most people are still just going have have not even heard about the boycott and are going in and buying Bud Light, right? And so if you if you publicize uh, a boycott and then it doesn't make a difference, then you look weak, right? A strike is where our leverage is, and so that's what we're using. Um, 
If you feel like canceling your Netflix, go for it, champ. I'm not going to like save your 15 I bucks. I kind of do. I just really wanted to be like a morally righteous thing to do as opposed to I'm kind of between seasons of Drive to Survive. And I don't know if I need to see the final adventure of Uhtred in The Last Kingdom. Like, I'm probably good with where that show left off. But maybe I can be like, hey, fuck you, man. And also I mean, I'll take that $20 a month back. I'll tell you what I'm doing. I had been for a long time flirting with the idea of setting up a homeplex server for hey, all my media that I can't hey, get elsewhere. Hey, now we're talking. Hey, yeah. hey, 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 buddy. Hi. And now I'm doing it. I just got myself a used Mac Mini, uh, and I'm gonna. I've, I've put the spot in my in my closet where our little uh, Ethernet uh, connector box is, and and I'm gonna I'm gonna set the fucker up, and you know I'm gonna feel like I'm committing a revolutionary act while I do it. Uh, and and uh, I'm not, you know, currently I'm not giving Netflix my 15 bucks. And if you want to join in on, in on that, feel free. Well, in time. Homeplex servers and wherever they source their files from may be the only places to watch a lot of things that have disappeared from streaming and become tax write-offs. Yeah, uh, and, so and, which is which is a tragedy. Been, it's been really interesting to watch the resurgence of interest in good old-fashioned piracy. To be quite honest, that uh, people are saying it, it was especially after HBO Max took down all that animation, and people were like, "Okay, I need a." Uh, give me a torrent link to Infinity Train because that's the only place to get it, you know? Well, I, I mean, honestly, w w when they went to Max, they took down a bunch of episodes of Adam Ruins Everything, and I don't know why. And no one will, no one has told me. And probably if that goes on long enough. <laughs> yeah, could be. Um, he spoke it too could much just truth be a clear power. Horror. I'm sorry, we can't do it. <laughs> so, He's you know, too brave. Go on long enough. <laughs> We can't let this be on the air. He's too brave. <laughs> there are a couple topics that that happened with. Um, there was an incident where we talked about uh, cable company mergers and uh, True TV pulled the episode because we called AT&T out by name while the AT&T Time Warner merger was happening. And they <laughs> took the episode out of reruns and off of their streaming platform. Um, they should have listened to you, though, because they would like. You could I argue know. that that was sort of that was sort of a pivotal moment in antitrust, where even people who are pretty much like let let hustlers hustle sort of realized, oh shit, this is too much. Yeah, we took a bath yeah. on this, and it, yeah, it was it was disastrous for everybody. As was the next merger between uh, uh, Warner and uh, and Discovery. Um, but yeah, I mean, like I, I literally at some point might be like, hey, here's a torrent link because that's the only way to get this show currently. And I'm very proud of it still. Um, the other way to support, I just want to say, is that uh, there's a fund called the Entertainment Community Fund. It's a longstanding charitable fund in Hollywood that uh, supports folks who work in the entertainment industry who are in need. We are we have been raising money for them. Um, if you go to entertainmentcommunityfund.org, you click donate, and you choose from their little where to send your donation, film and TV from the drop down. That money will go to support uh, folks who are affected by the strike. Um, they are not in dire need of funds. It's a well-capitalized, uh, you know, charitable fund that's been around for a long time. But if you want to donate, you know, uh, uh, any amount of money to them, that does go to help uh, affected workers. And, and so that's that's the best way to help. In addition to just like boosting what we're talking about, talking about it on social media, spreading the word publicly, all those things are really helpful. That is the Entertainment Community Fund, you said? Entertainment Community Fund, yes. Perfect. Uh, all right. Well, thank you for uh, thank you for the background and all that. Thank you for patiently sort of walking us through the the current negotiating landscape. I regret we don't have time to talk about 
all the ways that this stuff stretches back to early Hollywood and like who the the foundational elements of the unions and the studio's bargaining positions and who got mobbed up. We have to leave all that. We have to leave all that to the side. But uh, maybe at some point we'll have a discussion about the the deep the deep Hollywood strike lore. Uh, that, that I'd love I'd love past. to do it because because it's one of those things where the only way to understand the present is to understand the past. And uh, you know, the Oscars is a union busting organization. Okay, let me just I'll throw that out there. We'll get into that uh, maybe uh, next Oscar season. Perfect. Cannot cannot wait. Uh, <laughs> we're going to take a quick break here, and then we are going to. Yeah, maybe talk on a couple games. I think some of the stuff about things disappearing from streaming is really reminiscent of some things that we've been going through as a group <laughs> this week. Uh, so we'll we'll be back after this. My consumer right to purchase Syndicate PC 2012 has been infringed. <laughs> <laughs> this is just like strike negotiations. <laughs> And we're back. And yes, as Ren, Ren alluded to, uh, the man doesn't want you to rip chip. But by God, <laughs> we're going to rip chip. I got to rip chip. I need to. I, every day I wake up and I say, why am I not ripping chip? So <laughs> a couple weeks ago. Thing, rip chip and lie. <laughs> yeah. yeah lesbians weeks- only know two things. Rip chip and lie. <laughs> Yeah, a couple weeks ago, I was like, "Hey, I just loaded up Syndicate on a whim." That's what a what a fun game. And now we're all then people people warned us they're shutting down the multiplayer. So this is like literally our last chance to play yeah. multiplayer, which triggered a crisis here at Waypoint, which Remap. is not Waypoint anymore. Uh, <laughs> so Dang. actually, actually, one could say Waypoint had its last crisis, and it did not survive. <laughs> But Remap had its first crisis, and its first crisis was uh, how are we going to get Syndicate before they shut down the servers? Because the minute we started trying to acquire it, and people in our audience were starting to acquire it as well, it it kind of felt like the corp realized what was happening. Walmart said no. I said one copy of Syndicate PC 2012, and Walmart said, we think you're committing an act of fraud. (laughs) <laughs> and then I and then I was like, no, 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 let me log back in. I'll change my password. We're all good here. It's me. It's Renata. It's your friend Renata, Walmart. And Walmart was like, and what do you want? And I was like, syndicate PC 2012. And they said jail. <laughs> Were they you said, trying to order they said a jail. physical copy or a key? Digital like code. Kato, uh, how long did your digital code take to get in? It didn't. It still hasn't. Yep, I ordered I from Walmart it. at Saturday at 11.41 p.m., June 3rd. Uh, I didn't get fraud fraud bopped like you did. And I think it's because I used, I put it, I it directly inserted a credit card number into walmart.com. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's just been sitting on pending since Saturday. It's Friday the 9th now. Uh, I don't think they're going to give me my code. <laughs> I don't think so either. And, 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 a week ago, people were getting code through that channel. Yes, this is this is the reason we even tried it was that somebody yes. had had mailed in Whoa. or tweeted or something. It was like, hey, if you go to Walmart.com, 
they will send you a code. I I did it and I got the game. My Um, guess is somewhere on the back end. Yeah, there's like a pool of keys. And when that pool is exhausted, the way it's supposed to work is like they just get a new batch from EA and like continue issuing those. But there are no more keys being that is my suspicion at least because it's been it's been delisted everywhere nobody's selling this thing uh like it it is very clear once again uh the corpos at ea don't want people to play syndicate probably because it's too powerful to work and might open people's (laughs) eyes and expand their minds its vibes are too rancid they can't let the people see how fucking hateful this game's heart is it's it's incredible it is incredible. I have not seen a game this rancid at its core in a minute. Um, the willingness- well, I would say, say hand because I think that like I don't think the game is rancid at its core. Yes, I think the game is telling a story about a world that is world rancid, that is to, rancid its to its core. Yes, and yes, I think yes, that's yes, yes, because yes. and I think that's that's kind of the difference. There's way more rancid games I've played. What it makes Syndicate kind of bracing and refreshing is that it kind of looks hard at a subject matter and is like. You can't you don't get to be the good guy in the story. You don't get to be the good guy in the story, but also like the way that it treats human being, like the way that human beings are like turned into like mechanics and like assets, like they are just straight up treated like assets from the player's perspective in a way that is like fucking haunting. Uh the amount of civilians in the locations you fight through in this game is like I cannot think of a of a shooter that has you fight through more public spaces other than like maybe Max Payne three as mm, like a, a, a game that is deeply about like, you know, fighting through very public spaces, but like, even and who in gets Max to count Payne as 3, people, right. Who yeah. gets to count as people? Yeah. And also, but here's the thing, even in Max Payne three, when you fight through the office level in Max Payne three, there are not office workers running the fuck around. When you fight through an office in syndicate, there are office workers running around. There is not a single Jesus. level in this game that does not have like a kind of astounding amount of civilians running around other than maybe in like the um, unshipped areas. Uh, yeah, Adam, I'm not sure you make this game today in part because this is like mass shooting simulator and wow. It is it, with the difference. There were also that, mass shootings in 2012. Like, I not at this not at this rate. I would say, like, I do think in terms okay. of just the 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 steady like, uh, you know, water torture experience of living in the United States with mass shootings. Uh, it's it's a little different now, but I uh, but I do think like this game. So much of it is about people walking, like heavily armed people walking into civilian spaces and opening up. Uh, right. Like uh, it would be I'm, I'm sorry, I guess it wasn't a huge hit. So I guess maybe it wasn't controversial at the time. But now I think it would it would really overshadow the game in a lot of ways. And I do think that the game is trying to do something with that specifically, like it, the way this game uses the phrase soft asset is like it, it is very well done. Uh, you know, companies refer to people as soft assets all the time. Uh, military organizations mm-hmm. refer to people as soft assets all the time. Um, but the way that gets turned into like just a fundamental perspective that the world is built on in syndicate is like really haunting when two corporations go to war with one another, they are going to shoot each other's office workers because those are soft assets. They are trying to, in trying to obliterate a company, you will obliterate everyone who works there too. Uh, and like there, that is the reason why like, you know, um, there's a scene in syndicate where you're following behind another agent for the syndicate you work for. And he just massacres an entire train car for 
no discernible reason until you remember everyone on that fucking train car works for the same company. Well, and, and like he- in the lore of the game, uh, everyone is chipped up, but effectively they are also, it is like the ultimate non-compete, right? Like your yeah. physical being, your capability is tied to your, your corporation. You are effectively a surf tied to the manor, the corporate manor. And so, yeah, like, you see the way this corporate warfare logic has changed where you can't hire people away. You cannot, you cannot poach. You cannot like steal talent. You cannot win a bidding war for it. So what, so how do you get your competitive edge? And here the logic is, well, we could just literally destroy their workers. We could yeah. just kill them. Wow. Yeah. What if we, what if we stole children? Like, Hey, that, how do you get new workers? You steal a child. You, you, they're not hiding a child they're stealing a child yeah. <laughs> as we as we speak to turn you into a super soldier um so here's a question oh my god wait also sorry i just wanted to note one lore thing rob do you notice what they refer to kilo as in the games like lore documents what he has a title the favored son oh shit <laughs> he's the it's best so good He's he is the favored so, so like that's why the CEO is such a freak about you is because he does see you your character as like legitimately his like successor right like he is like you are the favored son uh and it's good. so it's so good it's so good you're Kendall Roy in the game <laughs> no but but here daddy really wants to give you the kiss yeah like yeah. like like dad like daddy oh, daddy's Adam, like, you do know that it's Brian Cox right no, I don't. Really? Yeah. Yeah, no, Brian Cox is the CEO in this game. <laughs> no. Yeah. What? You're lying. No. I have to play this. 100%. Uh, did, what's that last code that came in? You said we got a code late yesterday. Yeah, we got. There's one more that we haven't could used. Could you just drop it into the chat yeah, here for, for Adam? See if it works. Because uh, yeah. Adam rush ordered again, syndicate fever sweeping the nation. Adam rush yeah. ordered an Amazon copy to see if maybe the key, the code in the box works. You uh. you told me that hopefully there's a code in this box, and uh, I literally I'm in uh, I'm on tour right now. I'm in St. Charles, Illinois, right now. I've told my girlfriend if an uh. Amazon box comes for me, open it up, get the code inside, and text it to me so I can try to install it. This 2012 EA game on my Steam Deck. Because yes. <laughs> yeah. I want yeah. to try this. <laughs> That's where it belongs. <laughs> my Steam Deck is coming in today. I have a Steam Deck that is coming Ooh. in during this recording. I want to see if I wait, if I can get Syndicate on that too. I, I'm so excited. I'm so excited. Oh, I just I played through the whole game's whole campaign. Wait, can, like, you, can you download the like five hours, six hours? You need the EA app is the thing. Yeah, I I a cursory search implied that I can get the EA get app the on EA app. the Excellent. Steam Deck. You can get a shocking nice. number of things running on the Steam Deck. <laughs> Man, yeah, I should, I should maybe get a Steam Deck. <laughs> Once again, things people don't want you to know about. Can uh, I just say, <laughs> yeah, just to connect what you were saying, Ren, about soft assets. Uh, I hate to go backwards, but it connects so clearly to the labor struggle, in my view, because. Like the reason, one of the fundamental reasons that like labor constantly has to fight for its survival is its softness. That like if you're a, if you're an audio auto plant, you don't control the price of steel, 
right? Because you buy that from someone else. You buy it from a company that is as powerful as you and you don't get, yep. you have a limited ability to reduce the price. But your workers, well, you have a lot more power than them and the more costs you can push onto them, the more that you can make them do with less, that's not your problem if people can't make a living. And so it truly is a soft, they see it as a soft cost that they can reduce. And the point of striking is to make it a hard cost to them again. To re- like, And a big reason that we're on the picket line is to remind them that like, hey, these unions, we've been around for a hundred years, we're historical power in this town and you do have to fucking take our phone call. Um, and you know, we're a historically powerful union and, and we have advantages others don't, but like, that's the fundamental strategy is to like harden yourself so that you are not treated as, you know, completely fungible by them. Yeah. And it's the, and ultimately like the last line of defense is, you know, government, right? Like this is when, we, like when we talk about like price gouging, for instance, this happening, the only remedy there is that there has to be like big brother needs to come and kick people's asses. And yeah. make sure that stops happening. And consumers like consumer unions aren't a thing. Like you said, boycotts aren't going to work. So that's yeah. not like you, you can't get everyone to be like, I am. You know what? If we all just team up, we don't buy eggs this week. Fuck them. They'll be sitting out. That's just not going to work. Uh, and yeah, the, the world of syndicate, like it's it's a ton of lore. They lay out in that game. There's a ton of like delicious lore as you go through it. And a huge part of it is the stages through which you know, the corpse destroy government capacity and supplant yeah, it yeah. and begin fulfilling and, the functions of government among themselves. And to put a literal point on what you're saying, Rob, that the only reason that unions have any power or ability to do anything in the United States is because of the a measure of government protection that we have before, you know, the the National Labor Relations Act and, and all the various other protections you, you know, workers would go on strike and then the companies would hire private armies to shoot them to death. And like many, many people died in that until as the government would shoot them, too. Uh, but, you know, it was decades and decades before, uh, you know, unions achieved protections under labor law. Um, and at that point, the company started to try to erode those protections um, yep. as they've been able to do successfully over the last 50 years. So, uh, yeah. Well, it seems like they won a major uh, victory the other week, too, with. um the Supreme Court green lighting suing unions for damages. That uh, was a little bit more. That, that wasn't as was bad that as overstated? it could have been. It, it, was, it was not as bad as it could have been, uh, according to the labor lawyers I've spoken to. So the, the case was that uh, a bunch of Teamsters who drove cement trucks uh, went on strike. And when they went on strike, they just sort of took the, te- the keys out of the, out of the cement trucks. And the cement hardened in the trucks and destroyed the trucks. And, uh, you know, strikes are supposed to be painful, right? You're supposed to, you know, uh, incur costs because you went without the labor. Uh, but the this cement company sued the union, and that case went all the way to the Supreme Court. And the fear was the Supreme Court was going to rule that uh, basically any cost caused to a company by a strike, the union would be liable for it, which would have been a major, major uh, uh, detriment to the labor to the labor movement. Um, The actual case ended up being a lot more narrow. What I've been told this sort of preliminarily because we have to see how it works out in the courts. 
But, but preliminarily, what I've been told is that it will hopefully apply only to cement trucks and other yeah. similar situations. It doesn't mean, for instance, in the Writers Guild right now, we're shutting down shows, like a show that has booked a location. They've spent $100,000 to rent a space. They've hired trucks to show up. They've got all their equipment there. We'll pick it out in front, and then the crew doesn't show up because they don't want to cross our picket line. And then the uh, company uh, you know, loses all of that money because they can't shoot that day. Um, if we were liable for those damages as a union, yeah, that would reduce our power by a lot. It doesn't seem like that is going to be the case from this decision. But it, uh, again, it's all very preliminary. We have to see how well, it, how it uh, works through the courts. And you end up hoping at a certain point that cooler heads prevail at least a little bit, because if you are going to. Like there's a point where like the law becomes so comically illegitimate that what you've created is, well, there's no incentive to like observe any rules. So next time some trucks are getting burned down like that, you know what I mean? Like that's the, if, if you're just going to destroy the union, cause like, Oh, we're suing you just for even thinking about striking. We're going to sue you for damages for that. Uh, that is how you end up basically rolling back the 1900s, 1910s, 1920s. And that's what we're, we're doing our history lesson. That is what happened in the 1900s was you had, it was an armed conflict between labor and management And the fundamental reason the government stepped in was to broker peace, was to have peace between these factions and say both of them, including labor, have, you know, enshrined power within the law. Uh, And if they're going to undo that power, then, yeah, they're going to bring us back to a point where the only choice is to uh, take up arms against the oppressors. And we all hope that doesn't happen because people are going to die again if it does. Um, So in so I think. Let us know if that code works for you, by the way. We just dropped it. We just dropped it in. Uh, oh but God. but yeah, Thank like so Syndicate <laughs> is a – I think that that's one of the cool things about it. It is, is it, it, it is a very bracing game and in some ways I think speaks more to our time right now than maybe it did even in its own time. Uh, and I think sort of, its, <laughs> sort of its nastiness and cruelty I think does reflect kind of what a lot of us increasingly feel is just the score at this point is just kind of, this is how companies see the world and this is how they see you. Yeah. And like, I don't know. It's also just like, I think it's does all of this very elegantly. Like, well, elegantly is a, is a strange word to use here because it's a very like, cru- it is a deeply cruel game, but it is like very pointed in its cruelty. Um, and like, uh, also like incorporates it into like the core of the gameplay loop in a way that is like, kind of surprising even today um you know there's this one sequence where you're chasing a person carrying uh a woman who you're like trying to like recapture uh and you were given a minigun and then pushed into this space where a bunch of people are running through while also like enemies are running the opposite direction at you and like that sequence is real easy if you hold mouse one However, if you don't hold mouse one and try not to kill a bunch of people, it becomes like a, a really tough slog to get through and is in, in a way that is like very effective to me. Yeah, well, especially because um, on hard, you go down so fast that so if you start fast. taking fire, you're dead. So yeah. the way you win the gunfights is shooting first and like taking down threats before they can open up, which means... Yeah. Everyone is dressed in really neutral colors in this game, and the bloom lighting is just off the charts. And so, really, if you're standing there with a minigun surveying these like concourses, everyone 
looks like a potential target. Uh, yeah. You really have to take a beat to to parse out who is who's a threat, who's not, because they're all wearing like cream and gray. Yeah, just some of them are carrying guns. Unless he used like the dart overlay, at which yeah. point. But also, like, here's the thing: bullets go a lot of places, especially and, with like, a minigun. Yeah, even like you know, Rob was talking when we Rob and I were like messaging back and forth about Syndicate a little bit, and he was like talking about the experience of like trying to get through a fight relatively carefully, and then turning around and looking behind you. Uh, and like seeing how other people strays, like killed like seven people for like yeah. the just, people you spared coming wow. into the zone, coming into the combat area are now dead because as you were dodging fire, they were behind you. Yeah, it's 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 a it is a wild game. Also, like it has like some of the best cover penetration mechanics that it, like that yeah. like shooters have had in years. Uh, this is a game where you can like highlight enemies like. Sometimes the best thing you can do is turn on like that night vision, like the, 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 you know, see through cover mode and just like put six shots through a brick wall yep. and like, and like, and take out a guy before he can even react. Um, I just also back. like backfire is such a good ability. It's a, it's a game that has like it built around like three core abilities that every character that, that your character has access to. Um, content warning for some really dark shit because mechanically this game is really dark um uh one of them is suicide in which point it forces an enemy to pull out a grenade and blow themselves up uh the other is backfire which detonates uh basically like discharge like causes a, a gun to backfire uh causes like the magazine to discharge which knocks an enemy down makes them more vulnerable to damage and like chains through people and so like if you backfire and then like even with like a relatively weak gun because it makes enemies more vulnerable to damage you backfire and then it's just bop 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 gone like three dudes just gone like bop 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 and then finally there's persuade which is an ability that forces an enemy to fight on your side uh, until all the other enemies are dead, and then they also commit suicide. Like it's 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 really dark um, yeah. in a way that is like legitimately off putting at times. Uh, do I think Syndicate lands in all ways? No, I do not. However, like it is it is a very effective tone piece. Yeah. Um, I mean, just the- this code has already been used. Fuck. Wait, really? Yeah. Oh, All right, it's well, what it says. That's what I. That's on the EA website. Um, and uh, there's yeah, a, so a lot of people are sending us codes from box. Like they're not sure where they like. Did they use this code in the box? So there's so a lot. We've gotten a lot of codes uh, that have ended up being well, used elsewhere. I see. The, the 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 what is going? The moment of truth is going to be when I open the boxed copy I got from this Amazon reseller yeah. and I try that code, and that's what we'll see. I bet you that one works. I, uh, but, I have a good. But let me ask. Why, like, on the EA app, when I was trying to figure out how to buy this, they're still selling an original game called Syndicate from the 90s. So why are they taking this version down specifically? Is it because they don't, is it because they're taking the server down and they don't want you to buy a game that the server is not working for? Yes, and also the game has, like, uh, I believe, like, fundamental like server-side anti-cheat and like anti-piracy measures that are being pulled down like the anti-piracy and anti-cheat measures are being are being like those servers are also being taken down oh. uh, and so because of that they don't want to have to keep main like basically replace that like anti-piracy infrastructure um, so the will the campaign like the single player game stop working as well if- i don't know no one knows. Yeah. I think it probably will, but there's a chance that like somewhere in just the game launching, 
it does checks and that will derail it. My hope is that the single player will will outlive the multiplayer, but I really don't know what's happening in a week. Yeah. Well, um, I'm now I'm wondering what's the state of piracy of this game? Is there is, how good are the cracks? I, I, mean, I, I mean, this would be a game. I would be so thrilled if like you discover there's a, you know, open syndicate project and people have, have resurrected the multiplayer. That would bring me so well. much joy. I've heard it emulates well. Um, it came out on 360 and PS3. I believe 360 emulation is getting to like a pretty solid point. Uh, and so, yeah, I've, I've heard that it emulates pretty good. Uh, okay. But you know what? Nice. All right. So, uh, you know, before we before we go here, let's take a little dip into the uh, into the question bucket here. Splish uh, splash. Yeah. Let's 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 see what let's see what <laughs> missives have come in from from our listeners. Uh, I feel like we might have answered this, but y'all can y'all can tell me. I'm thinking about uh, this is this is from Alex. I've been thinking about maps, waypointing, and wayfinding a lot lately. My question is a simple one: What is your favorite overworld map in games? Great overworlds. Mm. Uh. An overworld map. Yeah, overworld specifically that as as opposed to yeah, which is a different right. It's its own its own thing, its own category of mapping. Yeah. Uh, so there was a there was a neat little game that came out uh, a couple years ago, Pathway, that is an Indiana Jones style tactics game with just gorgeous little pixel art graphics. And it has a pixel art like Indiana Jones style map where your party is moving through the world is like the red da- the red dashed line, uh, you know, go- going around. Uh, All right. When you know, like they travel on. Yeah. 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 In, in like a movie. And it's just like, this is the plane path. And but you know what? what like, it, works like in this it's one? derivative, but there's a reason that, sh- that those transitions are so evocative uh, right. in that in that uh-huh. movie. It's evocative in the game as well. So that that is that's one of my favorite. Uh, you know, and that's that's right. So that is a that is a relatively recent game with a great overworld map. Is oh, I don't think it, this one counts really because it's it's it, it's too much of the game. But I'm thinking of uh, one of our favorites, Rob. Uh, high fleet. Mm-hmm. Oh it, wow! Because, <laughs> but it is also like the mapping and moving sections of that game are like easily two thirds of the game itself. Count, and, nope, like, nope, counts, counts. <laughs> but, I, but no, it counts. It counts. But yeah, specifically because the mechanics there are so interesting and surprise. Like at first, like maybe overwhelmingly deep but honestly once you like get into it a bit it, feel, it, it it's actually tuned i feel like very well to be like okay like you kind of understand the idea of like this is your radius you're, you're playing kind of against fog of war that you can't see really because it's just radar situations um but it was just like such an amazing uh just i remember our, all our time spent trying to plot out like specific movements to try to like dodge between where we think the enemy patrols even are where we think there might be some long range radar like trying to spot us out and it's fucking amazing honestly what a great Um, game yeah god (laughs) i i i think i really like um 
maybe not like totally visually. I really like the Caves of Clid overworld map. I think it's a really mm. good version of that art style um, and and like used very, very well. Like it is also like mechanically one of my favorite implementations of the overworld map such that like you are finding one, the overworld map is legitimately representative of space. Um, each overworld map is like representative of nine tiles of like nine screens worth of like physical space in the game. Uh, and so you can either traverse it manually or by like moving across the overworld map. But also like so much of Caves of Could as an experience is like finding a statue in the world and that statue being like, hey, I think there's an old historical site that gets added to your map like way over there. And if you go to that historical site, there's like a bunch of cool shit there. And I just think that like the way that the map gets filled in over time by shit that you find in the world it's really sick, and I think the game does a really good job of, like, making each region feel distinct, uh, both on the map and also, like, in play, in a way that I, like, I think I just really like. Um, shout out Caves of Could. You know, I'm gonna think of something better as soon as I get off this call, but what you guys are, what you s- just said uh, made me think of something that I I miss, a certain style of overworld from games of the past is uh, in the actual pixel art days of the 90s, there was a tendency to make these overworlds that were just there to be evocative. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking of the overworld maps from games like uh, the first two Monkey Island games or uh, from uh, Chrono Trigger, for instance, which was a JRPG map with no random encounters. It was just there to be evocative and pretty and for you to enjoy the, you know, moving from one place to another. And, you know, it was just sort of this this world in which they would just have some pixel artist go to town on making something really gorgeous that p- places you in the setting um, that you're just going to enjoy moving from one place to another. And it was actually one of the things that um, I was disappointed by the new Monkey Island game for a number of reasons. I didn't make it through, um, unfortunately. Uh, I heard Patrick raving about it quite a bit. Um, something of the magic was lost for me somewhere along the way. And I remember feeling a distinct feeling of disappointment when I got to the uh, Melee Island map in that game. And it didn't quite have that mysterious, beautiful feeling. Um, uh, and I think it was just of a time in the for the same reason that game manuals don't have illustrations because <laughs> the graphics are good enough. You don't need to, uh, you know, create that image in the mind of the player anymore. I feel like that's sort of gone by the wayside as well in, in game design. Yeah. No, totally. Was- and I think that's a broader, like you used to see different depictions of the same character and you would have yeah, this idea exactly. of like them existing in a few different art styles and like, like, representations and that's kind of gone right there's kind of this uniformity that's 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 been applied yes i was there's a cool go for it i was just gonna say i was so hoping that the creators of final fantasy remake would do the right thing and it seems that they have not and and can include the overworld map and include chibi versions of all those characters in like a high version that would have been so good but we've the the small amount of uh of uh footage that we saw at the game fest seems to be like they're actually just building out that overworld as an open world instead at the regular scale which seems huge and maybe like a lot of empty space i don't know we'll see how it works out but i was i was hoping i was really hoping they they said fuck it we're going to make an overworld map to 
to to follow in the footsteps of the original Final Fantasy VII, and alas, they haven't. <laughs> yeah, are there any Neo RP- JRPGs that that take that op- that that overworld approach where you know the classic Final Fantasy thing of you you start walking around, then you get the boat, then you get the airship. And then you're like, oh, there's an island that I was never able to go to before that just has one mountain on it. What the fuck is that? I'm going to go land and explore. And, you know, that that feeling. Some game must have done that, right? There's- Chained Echoes did, right, Kato? Yeah. Well, was it a full open map? I, I, I didn't actually get super far I didn't get that, that far game. in Chained Echoes. Yeah. yeah. But it feels like less the sort of scale shift that used to happen, right? Where there was like a you're in town scale versus like overworld scale being obviously much more zoomed out and just like that shift of making the world seem larger doesn't happen a lot a ton in modern it's more like we have the technology now to fill in all of that space and make it feel larger but keep you at the same scale and just make the world bigger because just more literal like you know hard drive space for games to exist on um so i'm not sure that there's been very many that have have gone that route but I'm sure there's some sickos RPG out there. Do the trails? <laughs> somebody write in. Do the trails games do this? I I feel like the trails games might. Do I can this. go ask. Yeah, <laughs> I can go ask, ask Red. Yeah, over, over, overworld ask maps are our new. Uh, these are our marble bus statues. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is pointing at an overworld map. This is yep. what they took yep, from us. Exactly. Never forget. <laughs> All right. Uh, I think with that, let's close the book on this week of Remap Radio. This episode was produced by none other than our very own Ricardo Contreras. The theme song is Moments Pause by Two Mellow. You can check out their work on twomellowmakes.bandcamp.com. You can follow everything we do at Remap Radio on Twitch, Blue Sky, Twitter, on YouTube, but you have to put an at before it. We're we're working on it, I promise. Also, I discovered that contrary to my requests, we didn't create a Mastodon account, and people noticed that on the Waypoint Discord. Oh, okay, because there's a... Yeah, there's a waypoint uh, instance. Yeah, we can make one. I just it wasn't it wasn't on the list. It literally wasn't on the list at first, and then you like oh it was you tried to it was you tried to slide it in, and I was like oh, I'm busy. No, no, it's valid. <laughs> if I add it to the list of subtasks, it is valid. It is an action item. Oh wait, is that where you added it in the Asana? It wasn't on my list in the document after that meeting. <laughs> Well, you should check. Yeah, I should That's check why the, the Asana. Asana. I have to this, check the Asana. Yeah, this is just you confessing to organizational crimes. It wasn't in my document after the meeting. The Asana is the document. <laughs> That's fair. That's fair. I should have checked Damn. the Asana. The Asana uh, list. We have to. We have to reconsolidate. <laughs> I just realized you're talking about an app. I thought you were talking about like a hot room full of steam. <laughs> No, not a sauna. Kato, you left the documents in the sauna. Yeah. Oh, no. (laughs) It's all wet. They're mush. Oh, no. Yeah. Uh, And hey, once again, we rely on our audience for support, and you can sign up to become a backer by going to Remap Radio and following the uh, remapradio.com and following the links and instructions you see there. The basic plan provides access to an ad-free version of this podcast, and then all the projects we carried over from Waypoint Plus, including... Eventually, later this month, 101, Natalie and I are playing System Shock again, uh, Manhunting, and then the sports podcast. The foundation plan, uh, which is the $10 tier, is still a work in progress. It's where we're trying out new ideas and just discussing a lot of stuff that we're really interested in. Uh, This week, for instance, we talked about season one of The Bear. And, uh, you know, 
we're we're primed and ready for season two of the bear. The bear. Yeah, the the it turns out we left we left Vice to create a bear watch cast. Uh, go go us. And hey, if you are looking for other ways to support us, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts uh, or your platform of choice. I like that you said left like it was a choice. <laughs> That's true. Uh, we were we were thrown out. We were we were cast out of Vice. Uh. And you can and listen. Your support also lets us set time aside for streaming this week. Boy, we streamed a lot. Uh, Patrick and I played a little Diablo Four. Then we, you know, streamed along with the Game Fest and Day of the Devs uh, streams. And then Natalie and I started playing the System Shock remake, which was an absolute blast. And uh, also, we learned some things about Natalie's hardware setup and oh. some odd spec choices that she's 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 contemplating it was it was a lot of fun uh i just look i'm just i just question you know if you're on a 1080 monitor and you haven't been cursed with the knowledge like with the need for 4k you should just stay on the 1080 monitor that's my position that's yeah you should that 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 will just make your life easier and will save you money in the long run anyway uh thanks for spending <laughs> wow, some of your time i can't believe i just heard rob zachney say that holy shit <laughs> yeah that's wild did you see, you know, see John Sawyer tweet? Oh my god! Out there? Is, is, John Sawyer was in become... our chat. John <laughs> Sawyer, Josh. Sorry, sorry. Josh Sawyer. Yeah. Of, Wait, of, sorry. Of, wow. of, of, of fame, I guess, in our circles. Um, he was. Yeah. He was living well. So with how many people in our chat were like, "1080, 1080 is fine." Rob, have you yeah. become I the love vizier of admirable thrift? Like if Patrick is the king of admirable thrift, are you becoming the vizier of admirable thrift? Look, I think the difference here here is my <laughs> here's my position. Uh-huh. I think choosing the right tool for the right job is a beautiful thing, and it's rewarding and satisfying in its wow. own right. Spoken and that like is what vizier. I do. Yeah. <laughs> Rob, do not you cannot tell me that sometimes you just have to choose the right tool for the right job is not some shit that a vizier would say to you. That's uh, very true. <laughs> It is very true. Like if my vizier, if I went to my vizier and I said, "Please help me, help me, dear vizier," and they and said, I would say, "You must simply a dagger choose in the, the dark right to- is worth a thousand swords at dawn." Right, and I would be like, "Damn, that's so true, bestie." <laughs> Thank you anyway, for speaking on that. Thanks for spending uh, some of your time with us today. Uh, we are going to be streaming the Xbox uh, showcase this weekend, and uh, we'll be continuing some Game Fest adjacent wrap up stuff next week. Uh, And we'll also be back next week with another episode of Remap Radio. Until then, we'll leave a light on.